The grace of God moves me. I want you to know the grace of God is my message. Welcome to the EOU in Action podcast. Do you want to have an eternal impact with your life? Do you want to talk more about God? Do you want to study the Bible and see what it really has to say? Well, you're listening to the right podcast. That the people that have come here with great spiritual and moral needs, great spiritual and moral needs may find the answer. Our goal at EUU in Action is to make an eternal impact on the lives of the students at Eastern Oregon University through studying the Bible and discussing the big questions that these students might face during this time of their life. Welcome back to the Eastern Oregon on Fire podcast. I am here with Cade Shields. Well, 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 Cade, the last time we talked, Stanford admits that evolution didn't happen. And now we come to find that Harvard is admitting that Noah's flood likely did happen. These are unprecedented times, aren't they? Uh, Very unprecedented times, yes. (laughs) I mean, I'm just shocked that we're able to pull uh, content like this that is this good and this high of quality. from, you know, some of them with the most prestigious universities in the country. And there's really a lot more um, commonality and common ground that we find ourselves in as, uh, as Bible believing Christians with a lot of um, whatever we're calling them top rated scientists than you might think. So the talk is faith in nature, Noah's flood and the development of geology. It's available on YouTube. It's just at the Harvard University channel. This presentation was done through the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard. And the speaker is David Montgomery, who is actually a geologist at University of Washington. And they invited him over to do this talk. I do not remember the exact date of the talk. And what David Montgomery does is he gives a synopsis of different views regarding geology and what's called geomorphology throughout modern history. Geomorphology is explained in the talk as being the study of how the topography of earth is influenced by events like earthquakes and floods and possibly also by plate tectonics and volcanoes, although that wasn't specifically mentioned. So what David tries to do is he tries to give an account for the biblical flood story and how it may have come about and the various flood stories that exist throughout the world. And then he discusses the similarities and the differences between the biblical texts and the other flood stories that have survived throughout the world in different cultures. And then he goes into having different theologians, scientists, and other experts have dealt with the scientific evidence either for or against the biblical flood and what they notice in geomorphology and how that may fit in with the biblical story. And so he kind of outlines that. And it was very interesting because as he was walking through the history, he was becoming more and more negative towards the idea of a global flood and of the idea of catastrophism, which a lot of young earth uh, scientists and creationists tend to hang their hat on. And so he covered how in the 17th and 18th century, basically the predominant viewpoint was that the flood did happen. However, the geologic record involved more than just creation plus the flood, then in the late 18th and 19th century, the viewpoint becomes that the flood represents the most recent catastrophe within the geologic record. And then by the 1830s and 1840s, the geologists have abandoned the idea of a global flood and said there's no evidence. And you and I were talking last week, and it was 
quite interesting because you hadn't gotten to the part where he kind of swings it back a little bit more in favor of the person that believes in catastrophism and these ideas. So, so he does swing it back and he describes how now in geology and like an undergrad course, the student would get some sort of blend of understanding that the geologic record is influenced by long, slow processes as well as catastrophism. Uh, and he caps it off actually with an example of an extremely large flood that occurred in Eastern Washington, which created the scab lands of Eastern Washington. I'm not exactly sure what part of Eastern Washington that is, but Apparently there's good evidence for an incredibly large flood there. So Kate, let's kick it to you. What do you think were some of the highlights from the talk? Well, first of all, he's a very well-spoken and very well-educated guy. So he made some good points. I liked too, how he was able to talk and kind of lay out the history of geology and the thought of the flood and then how it didn't happen. And then now where we are today. Um, So I think that was super cool to see. I think a main highlight that I enjoyed was that, and I also didn't know, was that there are a lot of flood stories, like historical stories about floods in different regions all over the world. That's right. And I just, I wasn't aware of that. And so I liked how, you know, he educated me on that. And um, I did like though too, how he mentioned Noah's flood, right? But how he kind of alluded to that being the main flood story in the world, which was cool to see. Yeah. um, Some of the things that I thought were um, important to note from his talk, one concept that he had, which I think he took from Thomas Aquinas, uh, was the concept of God's two books, how God has revealed truth both through the created world as well as through the Bible. And he thinks that we should seek to harmonize those two things. So that was an interesting concept that God has spoken through both of those vehicles. Uh, We'll get more into that later. And I also appreciated that he had some discussion of plate tectonics, and that was interesting to just learn a little bit more about that. And then just the discussion between the slow processes versus the catastrophism and kind of what interested me is that it's almost like the science, if you will, or at least the interpretation of the science is coming back more in favor of understanding that there were these catastrophes that shaped the landscape. Right. Uh, So where did you find common ground or agreement with David? I mean, it seems like he's not someone that we want to necessarily do a full frontal assault on because we agreed on a lot of points. And so where do you think that you found common ground with him? Well, I think in finding common ground with him, the first time I watched it, it was, I guess I was watching it through a poor lens. But the second time I watched it and went through it, he pointed out the fact or like the idea that there wasn't enough water on the earth to cover the mountains and all the peaks in that, and then kind of talked about plate tectonics and all of those things as well. And so I think it was like interesting when he brought in like slope and the linear movement of water. And when he said that, I was like, okay, that makes sense. How would it, you know, how would it create mountains and valleys and all that? But then I had a question where if it was, as the Bible describes, it rained, right. And then flooded. So obviously it wasn't just poof, there was water. And then I also thought too, you know, today the tides are controlled by the winds and the moon and um, they can create currents. And so that was another thing where I was like, "Interesting, the water will move. But I also like to just the flood story was historical and how there's, again, as I've touched on before, there's 
multiple ones like I didn't know, but I did like that he acknowledged the flood story I believe in. Well, this got me into thinking about things like you know the world's other flood stories, as, as you might imagine it would. And I started to look at things like the global distribution of flood stories. And you know, many people have done this in the past. But if you kind of look at it and parse the geography and the details in some of those stories, you actually can put together some fairly interesting observations. Uh, but you know, their flood stories are from the around the Pacific Rim, uh, sort of in this area, region. Uh, they're across North America, from Alaska, across the Midwest, up into Scandinavia. Uh, and of course, there's a few uh, very famous flood stories, or one in particular, out of the Middle East. Um, what about that distribution? Um, well, I'll turn to that in a minute, but what first about the characteristics of flood stories? A lot has been made about the parallels between flood stories in different parts of the world. And the most common elements among the world's flood stories are really that people survive destruction uh, by water through some type of a boat or ark, and many of the other details actually vary a lot between different regions. But those, those key elements, essentially that there was some means of escape, that the flood was caused by water, well, that's kind of a no, that, that's a gimme, right? And that somebody was saved to tell the story. Those are the three elements that you would have to have in terms of any flood story in order for the story to have been occurred, been recorded, and been essentially transmitted. But the other question you need to wrestle with in terms of thinking about whether or not a um, um, uh, oral traditions like this actually could relate to real events is how long could you actually expect an oral tradition to survive transmission and still faithfully uh, tell of a story? The best example I can find of one that seems to be pretty clear is uh, a Klamath Indian story recorded in 1865 that reads an awful lot like an eyewitness account of the eruption of Mount Mazama, the one that formed Crater Lake about 7,700 years ago. If you read that and sort of filter it through the differences in culture and, and state of scientific knowledge um, between the Native American community in the Klamath region some 8,000-ish years ago and today, you can, you can basically read it as almost an eyewitness description of the, of the eruption. Um, and if that's right, it suggests that oral traditions could at least have been transmitted down through on the order of seven, 8,000 years. Yeah, a uh, couple other things that I had. So yeah, the flood story being historical, that catastrophic events can shape landscapes quickly and are a necessary tool in the geologist's tool belt. Geologists really, over the course of the 20th century, came back to sort of thinking about the tension between the slow and steady processes that shape the surface of the Earth every day and these kind of grand catastrophes that Cuvier and, and Bretz were talking about. And so today, now, any sort of student coming out of an undergrad or graduate program in geology is going to know is going to have the tools to both look for evidence for big catastrophes and to integrate up the day-to-day -day processes that, say, Hutton was thinking about in terms of his deep time. We sort of look at things in, through both lenses. He described how massive floods have happened in the past. And a guy named J. Harlan Bretz in the 1920s, uh, in his youth, actually had the audacity to discover evidence for those big Missoula floods that you were talking about a little earlier, um, when a glacial ice dam blocked the South Fork of the Clark River, created Glacial Lake Missoula, and notice this is Seattle over here under a lot of ice in the Pleistocene. But when this ice dam failed, this lake drained out and carved the channeled scablands of eastern Washington. Landforms that really, if you aren't thinking in terms of a really big flood, are really cryptic and hard to understand and at a scale that's really hard to see. Well, Brett's figured this out on horseback and in a car in a days before you could actually get up in airplanes to figure it out. You can look at NASA, NASA satellite imagery today and it'd be a lot easier to put the story together. Brett's did an incredible job of doing the, the field work the old school way. Um, why? Well, he was old school. He was working in the 1920s and 1930s and most of his geological colleagues didn't believe him for most of his career. Why? Well, because we'd already put to bed the idea of really big flood shaping topography. You know, the, the, the war over Noah's flood had been solved in the 19th century. He couldn't possibly be discovering this kind of stuff. 
it took most of his career and most of the 20th century for geologists to actually come around and for his views to be vindicated in terms of looking at what shaped the topography of eastern Washington. And he described how we should seek to harmonize God's two books. St. Thomas Aquinas, in the 13th century, also accepted the reality of a global flood, pretty much for the same reasons. You could see fossil marine organisms in the rocks and mountaintops. Um, but he explicitly argued for understanding nature, what he called God's other book, in seeking to understand both scripture and the world around us. His basic argument was that since, in his view, God wrote the Bible and created nature, they, those two rent areas in which you could investigate and think about uh, the nature of truth had to tell the same story because they shared the same author. Um, and in other words, if you learn something about the nature of the world, you should have enough faith in nature um, and in God's creation of nature to essentially think about reinterpreting any elements of the Bible that were in conf conflict with that, because in the end, the two could not be in conflict. I think I would agree with him on that. So there's a slight issue here where I did find common ground in that what he's saying there is true, that uh, God is the creator of the universe, the world, and everything in it. And so he knows exactly how it operates. And that's a manifestation of, you know, his creative endeavors. So we don't need to see the Bible and what we find in nature to be at odds with one another. However, his solution to that is when a new scientific discovery is at odds with the Bible, well, you need to reinterpret the Bible. And my problem with that was that it could also be your interpretation of the science that needs to change. And his entire talk was about how people's perspectives on geomorphology has changed. And if you're following that logic, it probably will continue to change in the future. So there is a part of science, which is just the hard facts. And there is a part of it. And this is very much true in geomorphology where it's, you're trying to interpret or come at the best conclusion. And sometimes that conclusion may be what needs to change. I agree. I noticed that too. It was interesting how he was talking about how it changed over time. And then all of a sudden it almost seemed as if it, um, we reached a point where it's solid fact and this is how it is. And our interpretation of the Bible needs to change. But if you think about what he was talking about for 45 minutes prior to that, it was how geomorphology has changed. Yeah. So. Yeah. So surprising that he didn't kind of notice <laughs> yeah. what, what he himself was doing in the talk. Right. A um, guy like him. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> and we'll get into his issues with the young earth creationist and the validity of his arguments there. So all right, Cade, if David had opened the floor for Q&A, what sort of questions do you think you would have asked him? Very knowledgeable guy. I assume you're not a geology major or PhD in geomorphology or geology. So what questions would you have had for him? Yeah, well, you're right on that. I'm not an expert on this topic by all means, but um, I had a couple questions that came up. The first one for me was he described how Again, as I mentioned before, there's not enough water on the earth to cover basically Everest, right? The highest peak on the planet. But then he started talking about plate tectonics and we know that that's right. how mountains grow. And so yeah. my question for him basically would be is like, are mountains not allowed to grow then after the flood? And then at like, what rate do they grow? And also how do catastrophic events like earthquakes and like huge shifts in the plates, how does that affect mountains and like their growth and their speed of their growth? Yeah, that sounds uh, perfectly legitimate to me. I would have had the same question. And if you're just learning and, you know, let's put yourself in the shoes of you, you are, you know, up there with the mic and you're just trying to learn. It's like, well, why, why does Mount Everest 
at the point of the flood have to be at the 30,000 foot mark, you know, it could have grown to be higher than that later. Exactly. Um, so yeah, that was, that would, that's a great question. Um, do you have anything else? Yeah, I have two more. The first one would be, um, how he talked about large, like localized floods. And he kind of touched on the idea that, um, there's different layers of sediment in the rocks and how that would like basically debunk the great, you know, the great flood in meaning that there would have had to have been a flood before to get these rock layers. What Hutton realized this meant is that the story told by this one simple outcrop was far more complex than could be fit into the biblical story of an initial creation followed by a single flood as explaining all the world's topography and geology. Why? Well, there's two, two generations, two periods of deformation. This outcrop tells the story of the life and death of two mountain ranges, and that's one catastrophe too many to fit into the biblical narrative. And I would just want to ask him, like, who's to say that there were not huge and catastrophic, like, localized floods that did put different layers of sediment on top of the original one, like he touched on in the scablands of eastern Washington? Like, we know that happened, so why can't that happen everywhere else, too? I think you're hitting on something that is going to be really important as we proceed here. Did you have anything else under the category, just questions you'd have for him? he talked about animal species and how he was like, well, Noah would have only been able to gather 1% like of the animals. And as you and I talked last time, there's different like breeds of animals, right? So I'm sure that there wasn't, you know, I can't say for fact, but there might not be a golden retriever or a chihuahua or a pug, right? Or uh, different types of horses or beef cows or dairy cows at that time. Uh, Cause species, have grown out of that. Like we've bred animals as humans. And so I think that was kind of an interesting statement that he made. And, um, yeah, I just kind of, I'd like to get his opinion on that basically. Yeah. I was a little bit thrown off by that myself because it seems like he was talking about, well, here's why I don't think that the young earth creationist view is correct in terms of the global flood. And then he throws in something that isn't you know, is an account that's in the Bible, but is, is not a necessary component of believing in a young earth and a, and a global flood as proof that a global flood did not happen. You could conceive it being possible that Noah did not get every type of animal on the ark. And yet there was still a global flood in our recent history, right? You right. Can, you can, you can see that there's just a huge problem there. So for, a discussion at Harvard. I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, me neither. How quickly did you come up with these notes, right. um, Mr. Montgomery? Okay. Um, so moving on, are there any specific tactics that you would have used that like, let's put our apologetics hat on and talk about like, are there any tactics that you might use to kind of help David um, maybe move closer to your viewpoint or see things from a different perspective that you think uh, could be helpful now that you've kind of assessed parts of his talk? I think the, I mean, first and foremost, he's a professional and I think he did a great job keeping his opinions out of it um, and just kind of giving us the facts of what he had researched. And I would, I think what I would do would be to ask him what his opinion is on it and get that to kind of understand where he's coming from more and um, just more or less ask him why he thinks that from his point of view, rather than from the point of view of being like a, 
you know, a scholar at Washington or Washington State University, like being a professor there, just from David Montgomery as a person. So I think it'd be cool to tap into his more personal side. Yeah, 100% agree. I would go probably the same direction because a lot of the discussion he's going through the historical views on this topic of geomorphology and, you know, faith whatever he calls it, faith and reason or faith and reason. And I would just want to know what his actual opinion is because he seems to be leading uh, the the listener towards a certain viewpoint, but he is a little bit nonspecific about what his actual viewpoint is on the whole thing. You can see that he he's, he's pretty charitable towards the Bible, that the fact that theologians and scientists and experts that are Christians have, have wrestled with these things and tried to come up with conclusions and it's been much more nuanced than there's just like, oh, there's just the science wing and then there's like the Christian wing and then they're, they're at odds. And it's not that way at all. In fact, the, the Christians were the ones doing the science and the clergy were the ones doing the science initially because they were the ones that had the spare time. And so they were the ones that were introducing the different theories and concepts themselves. And so I appreciated that, but I would like to know before I tried to help him see maybe some of the issues in his talk, like what he actually believes. Yeah, so that's a good point. Right. Yeah. Like you just said, I think it would be the questions that I had previously posed and talked about. I would like to ask him, but I'd probably like to ask him those after I got where he was standing at and what his viewpoint was. So a big part of it would be he makes a lot of assertions during this talk, but I feel like he's assuming a certain level of, uh, of agreement or he just happens to be going really quickly through the historical viewpoints. So I I don't feel like he supported his conclusions the best in a lot of areas. And that may be for no particular reason. There's no error on his part uh, and there's no ill will on his part, but it just came out the way that it seemed like, well, he, he really needs to be supporting these conclusions a little bit better in order to win somebody over. Are there any ways that you would have put the burden of proof back onto him? Yeah, I think that I would have, I don't know, just been able to ask him, I guess, again, more what his views are and then see where these conclusions like definitely would prove what he was trying to prove. I think, again, it's hard in a conversation in a topic like this in the piece that especially with his like the video that we watched, because essentially he was giving an overview. And so that's where I think it might be hard for me to pin down areas for the burden of proof because I felt like he was giving such a broad lens of geomorphology and where it started and threw on like time basically. But where would you put it? Well, I had it in terms of the questions that I would ask him. So the first thing that I would ask him when he, so he did seem to go kind of hard after and disagree with the young earth perspective. So I would ask him like, how did you come to the conclusion that your three points that you had against the global flood and the young earth creationist viewpoint, how did you come to the conclusion that that means no global flood? Because the points didn't seem to me to lead to that conclusion. So his points on that was there's not enough water on earth to cover Mount Everest. That was point number one. And I assume he's using Mount Everest as a stand-in for the Himalayas and a lot of these other higher mountain peaks. However, you just mentioned that it's possible that the plate tectonics could have pushed up those mountains later. And that's still a question in our mind. We don't know. And so what makes him think that that's a good reason to discount the young earth creationist perspective? It seems like you still have plenty of runway there to still believe your conclusion. His second point was that the geologic record involves more than a chaotic 
globe wrecking flood. And again, I'm trying to ask him, well, why do you think that that means that there was not a global flood that again, that doesn't really go after the possibility of no global flood, which is what he was trying to prove that that would lend one to believe, well, there could have been a global flood and then there could have been events that happened prior to or after the global flood. So that seems to me to be some sort of logical fallacy that's going on there because I don't know whose view he is going after there or what young earth scientists or creationists are saying that the entire geologic record can be explained by two major events, just creation and just the flood. I think that they would all agree that there have been other events that have shaped the landscape. And so I'm not, I, that just doesn't seem to do anything to challenge any of my beliefs. Right. Are you following me so far? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The third thing is that, which he says is 99% of fossils are from extinct species. Now, this is probably what you would kind of expect if there was a global flood and there was rapid burial of a lot of the animals that were on earth at the time of the flood. So a lot of people would see this as support of a global flood, but he's trying to use it as its support against a global flood. And the reason that he does that is that in the story with Noah, he gets at least a pair of every type of living creature and gets it on the ark. Again, this isn't an argument against a global flood, which is what he said right at the very beginning of this part of the talk was his point. This is more trying to get at the accuracy of the biblical text about the topic. We covered this just a few minutes ago in the podcast. It could be true that Noah didn't get every animal of every kind, and yet a global flood did happen. So you can see that that doesn't help his case at all on that. So that's the question that I would ask is how, how in the world could you believe that um, you're conclusion on each of your three points equals no biblical flood. It doesn't seem like any of them are really helping his case. So there's no, none of those premises lead me to his conclusion. Right. And I, I completely agree. And, and you saying that, um, it made me think of something I could ask of is, uh, basically has geomorphology been wrong in the past and how, um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, as time evolves, ideas and thinkings get better. And so is it also possible that geomorphology could be wrong now and that in 50, 100, 200, however many years in the future, we find out that you know what we were thinking was right for so long in today's time is actually wrong. So yep. that would be yeah. something I could ask him too. Yeah. And then this isn't to say that he is wrong, but we would want to ask, how can we know with certainty that your explanation of geomorphology is the correct one. Right. And that would be more from a lack of knowledge because he does not present that in the talk right, so much, right. but that, that would be helping us perhaps guiding him to the concept with the two books that uh, your conclusion could be wrong now. Right. So it could be your interpretation of the scientific facts that needs to change and not necessarily your interpretation of the biblical text. Right. You know, when we're doing this task of geomorphology, perhaps unwittingly, it seems to me that we're um, engaging in something called abductive reasoning, Cade. And so it might be helpful for the listener to kind of understand what that is. And uh, that is the type of reasoning that doesn't give us 100% certainty, where if you bring in a set of premises that the conclusion is true, it's just trying to argue for the most likely conclusion 
based on a set of facts or evidence and is not intended to give like 100% confidence or proof in the conclusion. So this is the sort of evidence that one would use in like a courtroom setting or like a detective uses in situations like that. And in geomorphology, that seems to me like what they're doing. They've, they've got certain facts and then there's multiple explanations that could fit those facts. And then you seek to find what the best one is. The Wikipedia entry for this says abductive reasoning is a form of logical inference formulated and advanced by Charles Sanders Pierce beginning in the last third of the 19th century. It starts with an observation or set of observations and then seeks the simplest and most likely conclusion from the observations. This process, unlike deductive reasoning, yields a plausible conclusion, but does not positively verify it. So in understanding that, you can see that just any of your conclusions in the field of geomorphology, you can't hold quite as tightly as, you know, two plus two equals four or something like that. Right. Okay, Cade. So let's say you're up there, you're asking him these questions. How do you avoid David Montgomery putting the burden of proof back onto you? You're getting up there, you're asking him some questions. He says, well, explain to me why your stupid theory is right. Well, first of all, he knows what he's talking about, right? So even before asking him a question, I'd probably go in with a little bit of caution. But then, you know, if he were to reverse it back on me, I would probably uh, just reverse it back on him and say, well, you know, if you're not going to answer my question, you know, why do I have to answer yours? This is not, people aren't interested in what I have to say. We're all here to listen to you. So I'm sure more people than just me would like to know your opinions or your thoughts. So just put it back on him, just reverse it back. Okay. That's a really good one. I like that. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. What did you have? Well, if you were up there asking questions, you haven't made any statements on what you believe. And it seems like he was trying to be somewhat objective and go through the different points, but he was leading you in a certain direction. So he, he was making some assertions in my opinion. Right. So, yeah. So you could say, Hey, I'm just in fact finding mode. I'm not an expert in this field. You are, um, I'm just trying to understand like why, the things that you're presenting got you to a certain conclusion because I'm not seeing the connection. Now you say that the young earth creationist book that was done in the 1950s was really good and had some good arguments. Which ones did you think were compelling? And are they, are they still compelling? Um, I would ask him that. And then I would also ask as this has come up twice now uh, in our discussion, are there any findings from plate tectonics that would actually help support a global flood? I have sought out some of the explanations from the young earth creationist. And what I've come to find is that the young earth creationist explanation of geomorphology is almost exactly the same as the, you know, whatever we want to call it, the official scientific version. Now it's really just a length of time. That is the difference now. Like okay. almost, almost everybody is in agreement that the plate tectonics you know, the, um, and I'm not going to be hundred percent perfect at describing this, but the, the plate tectonics, there was large volcanic and seismic activity that caused the continents to be flooded and for them to be, to be split apart in all likelihood. And the young earth creationist thinks that there was one huge one in particular. And I think the predominant view now is that there were maybe three or four of them, but it's almost the same exact view. It's, it's just the amount of time that's occurred now. And right. So that's it, crazy. It's a, so it's all, it's all kind of 
what's the word I want to say congealing, but it's all like coming back more to there's, uh, there's almost agreement. It's really just the, the timeline of the millions and billions of years that are required for evolution and things like that. Whereas the young earth creationist doesn't need to stick to that. Right. right. Yeah. Are there any other tactics you would use with Montgomery? I feel like in me knowing myself and knowing him, um, and I feel like I'd be nervous to chat with him. So I think I would probably try to avoid some of the bigger tactics or, um, I think I would also be nervous and even trying to decipher them as they're coming up, like the Columbo tactic or something like that. So I think for me, I would probably just keep trying to reverse the burden of proof onto him. I'd like to use the other ones, but I don't know how well they would work out in a situation like that for myself personally. What would you use? Well, I wanted to use what's called narrating the debate. Now I went back to Greg Kokel's book on tactics and I found out that I was using it improperly. So the narrating the debate is supposed to be used in Greg Kokel's book when someone takes the conversation and moves it off onto a different subject that you explain to them what they just did and that they didn't answer your question. You know, they deflected, that they changed the subject. Uh, they engaged in an ad hominem, et cetera. So that's what it's used for, you know, properly if we're talking about Greg Kokel's method of tactics. But I think you could use it in another way. And how I would narrate the debate is this. I would say, okay, David, what you're telling me is that we need to harmonize God's two books. You're telling me that science has been pretty clearly wrong in the past and has had to make major adaptations to its theories regarding geomorphology. And it probably will continue to change in the future. But if we find new scientific evidence, it's our interpretation of scripture that needs to change, not our interpretation of the scientific evidence. Am I understanding you correctly? I think that'd be killer. I think that would work really well. I don't, I just don't know if he was aware that he was kind of like, if someone had a different perspective with him, that would be the natural consequence of everything that he had said. Right. And then finally, we could use questions to make a point. I had prepared uh, this part of the discussion in relation to the three points he makes against the global flood and the young earth creationist position. So I've kind of covered this already, but in response to his point about Mount Everest and there not being enough water to cover Mount Everest, I would just, I would just ask, cause again, we're not the experts here. We are just asking, are you assuming that Mount Everest is the same height now as when it was covered by the flood? And what makes you think that? Now, of course, he probably has a longer time scale, so he's probably relying on his longer time scale that gets him to believe that Mount Everest, you know, probably hasn't changed a whole lot since the timing of when the flood would have occurred. So that's probably why he's he's coming to that conclusion. And then he describes the the whole globe as being covered in water. Uh, according to the biblical flood. And his issue with that is that you would have had completely still water because there wouldn't have been anywhere for the water to go. And therefore you wouldn't have been able to have all these geologic features be created because there wouldn't have been any water flow. Okay. So that's, that's his point against the global flood. And so my question on that, because that does not seem like an accurate representation of the younger view is I would ask, is this how creationists actually describe the event? Is this how the Bible actually describes the event? Right. And I like that. And I kind of touched on this prior too, but my question for him would be, 
regarding that, if I was going to build off of yours, you know, from the guy in the back who adds to the main question, like I said before, the moon controls tides, you know, wind control tides as well. And so those are good points. Who are you to say that the water wasn't moving around, you know, like Noah in the Bible, it says that Noah was um, in his ark and he was moving around and it wouldn't, the earth wouldn't have just filled up with water and stopped moving. So I would just ask him why that happens today and why we have tides and currents in the ocean and why that wouldn't have happened then. That's a great point. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Um, and, and that completely, that adds to the discussion for me. So the questions that I have is like, which creationist are you even referring to that is saying that the earth was instantly covered to the point where all the mountaintops were covered. Like I can't think of one creationist that believes that that's how it happened. It's not like God snapped his finger and poof, the water completely covered the earth. No one describes it that way. The biblical account doesn't describe it that way. Someone that is of the young earth persuasion is believing that this occurred largely because of plate tectonics. But in the biblical account, there is also a lot of rain and the flooding would have built and built and built that would have made a lot of geologic features right there and then at some point it comes to a, a stopping point where the floodwaters don't rise any higher right and so it peaks and then what's got to happen well it's got to recede right and then when it recedes that is when you could have had some massive geologic formation as well so i just don't know and I would like to see, does he have more there in that part of his critique? Because it seemed like an incredibly weak critique to me. Yeah, I agree. It seemed super weak. And like, I think he thought it was well thought out, but I think it almost seemed as if he just kind of threw it in there to think that uh, no one would actually like think deeply on something like that. Yeah. And then I know I already mentioned this, but I think this is good to cover again. He he said that the 99% of the fossils are from extinct species. And so I would just ask, does this rule out a global flood for you? Why? Why does right. this rule out a global flood? That seems to support a global flood. Uh, it does. It really does. Um, yeah. And you could narrate the debate there. You could say, well, we were talking about the possibility of a global flood and whether the geologic record supports it. Now you seem to be talking about the possibility of the veracity of the biblical account specifically. It seems to me that even if not all the animals literally got on Noah's Ark, a global flood is still possible. What am I missing here? That would be the classic Greg Kokel way of taking that part on. Right. And if you're going to ask that question too, you just have to look at the idea and the fact that um, it said that there was a one of each kind, right? So we don't know if there was five, let's say, for instance, cows, right? We don't know if there was five males and five females or five million males and five million females, but there was just two of them on the ark. So that also doesn't make sense on how if 99% of extinct fossils mm -hmm. uh, or if fossils are extinct, then like that, it would make sense in that way. Yeah, it would make sense in that way. We don't know what species might have gone extinct. Maybe some went extinct immediately after the flood. Right. Or right. even some or maybe before. Or we don't know. That's a good point, too. That's also possible. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. So we've got a lot of questions for David Montgomery. You know, a good guy overall. I think he really is like trying to come to the, the truth by looking at the evidence in a lot of ways. Clearly, you know, we all have 
biases um he seems to have some of his own but definitely a guy i would like to engage in a discussion and he seems like a, a reasonable enough guy that it would be fun to to learn from him more on this topic so in the next podcast we're going to talk about possibly some positive evidence for the the young earth view and the biblical global flood and we will see where that takes us okay do you have anything else you want to add nothing else i want to add thank you matt All right. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, listener, for checking out the Eastern Oregon On Fire podcast. And we will see you in the next round. Hey, thanks for listening. If you're wanting to get connected with EOU in Action, you can find us online at eouinaction.org. Also, be sure to check out the other podcasts and free resources while you're there.